Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 5th of January, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, my Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. I'd just like to say at this point that I couldn't get into my car this morning. It was frozen. The temperature was one degree C, but we hadn't declared an emergency. I, I would have thought it would have been a, a bit strange. But I, I, I was also going to mention that uh, up until a few minutes ago, the sky was blue behind us, but uh, it's gone a bit uh, dark gray. And it's global we're... warming. Coming. Right. OK. It's nothing to do with uh, UK column news then. But anyway, <laughs> uh, OK, we're going to get started off with a serious story here. Uh, and Alex, uh, let's welcome welcome you onto the programme and say uh, the headline here is uh, heart attack patients told to make own way to hospital as COVID surge hits uh, northern England. So that's, uh, uh, well, this is the point that we've been making from the beginning. Uh, the National Health Service has been redeployed into the National COVID Service. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, people with uh, normal pro problems uh, suffer. Absolutely, Mike. Uh, this was picked up by The Guardian, originally reported by a specialist trade paper, the Health Service Journal, and it's an internal memo that's been disclosed via the HSJ to The Guardian, uh, completely the opposite end of England from Cornwall, where we last had uh, indications of the same thing, which is that ambulances are simply not available for people particularly in the more rural areas. Uh, it's being blamed on a COVID wave, but uh, you know you could, uh, with the whole of the UK column reporting from last year in mind, see it as a symptom of uh, quite a number of other issues in healthcare management, more, I think, management than clinical decisions, and something that's Europe-wide. But uh, th this degree of severity, that you can't actually get an ambulance to take you to hospital if it's a heart attack, uh, is something that we don't see on the European continent. So uh, together with other indications of just how badly people can be failed by the ambulance services now, not that I think it's the ambulance drivers and paramedics' fault, but uh, it, it is, is an indication now that you need to think seriously about whether you even want to get an ambulance to pick you up if you've had a heart attack. That might sound a, a shocking thing to say, but I, I think it's on my conscience to say it, even though we're right at the start of the news. I have had with my nearest and dearest uh, such conversations, particularly my older relatives, and you need to get clear in your mind at this stage whether you would rather see your nearest and dearest go quietly um, on, on the floor, to be brutally honest, rather than the, the horrors that may await them uh, hanging on for an ambulance that won't appear. John O'Looney, the undertaker whom Brian has interviewed, has on New Year's Eve released the text of a speech he would have given, which is up on Tap Newswire under the title John O'Looney Talks from His Hospital Bed. And he makes the point that as an unjabbed, uh, he was told from the ambulance ride onwards when he was taken in with alleged COVID that he was a terribly selfish man. Something is very, very deeply wrong with our ambulance service. And again, I don't think it's uh, the, the, the coalface. I think it's the policy that's the problem. And uh, Alex, I think we've just got to add to that, that of course the ambulance service was privatised many years ago. So people completely unaware at the time in particular that uh, ambulances taken out of the overall NHS service and put into these private organisations dispersed across the country. So where where does the responsibility lie? Who Who is actually responsible for the policy? Uh, it's now deliberately confused in the public's mind. And we got comments in the chat box, quite rightly, that we are paying taxes for this service, which we're now being completely denied. Uh, well, we're, being, we're paying taxes for the service, but uh, the intention is that we pay a, a levy on top of that for, for the NHS in particular. So, so there's going to be additional money required uh, for that. 
we've got a lot to cover, so we'll move on, Alex. And uh, we've got a video clip uh, from the BBC here, or, or at least it's uh, a, a, a from BBC Breakfast, I believe, uh, of an interview with Marcus Fish. Just quickly introduce this. This is from the 14th of December on BBC Five Live, so not the absolute flagship programme, uh, but a Conservative uh, Member of Parliament uh, who has sat on uh, quite a number of, shall we say, social issues committees. He's not, although he's an investment manager by background, he's not a hard-nosed type, really. He's, he's shown a heart. His name is Marcus Fish, with a Y, and he's from Yeovil, or his constituency is Yeovil in Somerset. He's talking here to uh, Rachel Burden on the 14th of December, and this, I think, encapsulates well uh, the level of mismatch between what the, the bien-pensant think uh, and what the Guardians of Liberty think about the issue of vaccine passports. What about the freedom not to be infected? Look, um, we are very well vaccinated in this country. It's been a great success. People have the freedom to do what they want with their own bodies and the freedom of association. And if you want to undo those things, you're not worthy of working for the BBC, in my opinion. Well, well, that's quite a personal statement to make. I suppose yes, what I'm is. doing is putting across the case that many of our listeners have. They don't want to go into a pub or a restaurant, a lot of them, if they don't feel safe and secure. So well, if you're talking go. about the safety of Don't people, go then. You don't... You don't tell other people what they should do with their bodies. Sorry, don't mm. do it. No, I, I, but the point I'm making is you're not telling someone what to do with their body other than yes, to say are. they've taken a test. I don't... Well, both of those things. You are segregating society based on um, an unacceptable thing. You, we are not a papers-please society. This is not Nazi Germany, OK? There, if you want to describe it socially, you've got the difference between grammar school girl and public school boy. And I know people will find me terribly elitist for talking about this, but I'm of the age of these two people and I know their educational backgrounds. Marcus Fish is Winchester College and Corpus Christi Oxford, which is about as good as you can get in English education at the moment for uh, understanding liberty and the freedom of association and of bodily integrity. Um, Rachel Burden, on the other hand, uh, went to a high school very close to me in time and space, High Wycombe um, High School. And uh, I'm afraid that the education that she and many others have got has pumped people's minds full of my feelings and other people's feelings rather than the principles of liberty. You now see the results. I think Fish is quite right to say that she's unworthy of working for the BBC. Yes, absolutely. But the question is, I mean, are you right to say that it was her school education was the problem or is it the, is it the education she had since she joined the BBC? Has she done any particular training courses, for example? This cannot be discounted. Uh, as with other all-encompassing modern British organisations, once you join and get some degree of seniority, such as presenting a show, uh, you are uh, you do have your head pumped full of institutional values. You are reframed in one of Brian's favourite words, which I think is very apt in this situation. Um, OK. Um, sorry, did you have... No, it's fine. I was just going to move on to the next. Well, no, the next one is Alex's as well, because oh, uh, we've got sorry. a short uh, video clip uh, featuring Keir Starmer here. And... Uh, if on one hand we've got well, at least a section within the Conservative Party at the moment who seem to be taking a stand against uh, what uh, Boris Johnson is doing, and of course with the full support of uh, Blairist uh, uh, Keir Starmer and the, uh, the, the, the newly cleared out Labour Party. Um, Starmer, on the other hand, has perhaps given himself away a little bit with this video clip uh, in that he, we start to see why he is not 
thinking in the same way as Marcus Fish? Uh, we, we are often saying, aren't we, that the real leader of the opposition or prime minister in waiting is Blair again, certainly since he's been given the order of the garter, uh, widely misreported as a knighthood, which is something about seven levels below what he's actually been given. The order of the garter is the, is the top honour in the country. It's the personal gift of the monarch. Well, Blair very much overshadows Starmer to the extent that many people can't remember the leaders of the opposition's actual name, Sir Keir Starmer. Um, here he is talking about the three campaign points uh, of his uh, new rallying cry for patriotism, uh, but he can't quite remember them. Let's have a listen. But it's not just the, the flag that drives our patriotism. As I said in the speech, it's really the values that lie behind that, the values I've outlined um, today of security, of prosperity, um, and, um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and um, respect. They're the three values that lie behind patriotism as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that, that, that's pretty shocking. It's it's very shocking. Um, 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 it's it's worse than a comedy sketch, and it's doubly ironic, of course, because Labour started hemorrhaging support in Muslim majority constituencies in the north of England recently to a party that called itself the Respect Party. And here is the leader of the Labour Party trying to win them back, uh, and he can't remember the word respect. Or was it that he just choked on it? <laughs> Quite literally, yes. I, I wonder whether he had a hidden earpiece there. Uh, or whether you know the, the the gulp of water gave him enough time to remember what was in his flagship document. Uh, it was magic. I and mean, he's water. supposed to be you know a hotshot lawyer, isn't he? He was he was formerly uh, the head of prosecution uh, for England and Wales at the Crown Prosecution Service. He's supposed to have a good brain for these kinds of things. Yes, but he's got a few other problems. Let's bring up eye news with uh, Keir Starmer self isolates, and unfortunately, this is for the sixth time. It says. After a positive COVID test with Angela Rayner to stand in for uh, question time. So he's, he's into trouble here because uh, tested positive. Uh, this was a little bit. He's not thought to have any COVID-19 symptoms, uh, but he's tested positive And now he's got to self-isolate for the sixth time. It's incredible, isn't it? Uh, yes, we also picked up here on the fact that uh, He'd just been talking to his audience and we've seen seen that bit. Just going to remind people that he thinks Tony Blair is a great guy. Um, but the fact that Keir Starmer has now tested positive and got to self-isolate again uh, was picked up by Jeremy Vine this morning. Let's have a look at this little clip. It's just happening, by the way. Yeah, Keir Starmer has got the corona. He's got, well, we don't know if it's Omicron, we assume it's Omicron, because that's why everyone's here. So, but this, he's been very unlucky. He's had to isolate, God knows how many times, but he also had COVID in October. Now, October 21st. So he will have had COVID twice in three months. And all his vaccinations. And this does, this is odd. I mean, I, I've heard of people getting it twice, but not this often, Angela. Well, first of all, we don't know which variant we have. You can usually sequence it when they do the PCR. So he may have had Delta before, and this could be Omicron. And we also don't know if he's poorly with it. And if he's not poorly, then maybe that's a great flag-bearing moment to think about cutting the, the days of isolation. Good point. OK, and we'll talk about him later on because he made a speech yesterday and it's in the papers. So we've got quite a lot of Keir Starmer today. So I love your call. So utter confusion now uh, spreading as people realise that uh, what the public's being told is A, a pack of lies and, and B, just uh, confusion and deceit. And so so just, you, you can't report it sensibly anymore. We've got Jeremy Vine 
smiling and using sarcasm as the UK column might, because we've said for a very long time, things are now so ridiculous, you can't report them sensibly. Uh, yeah, and as guests, they're sort of making up uh, you know, mechanisms by which this might have happened. It's, it's, it's all just, uh, yes. So, so where does, take where does that take through? us? Well, that takes us to France um, and Emmanuel Macron. And here is uh, uh, Le Point Politique. And uh, well, this, Alex, seems like a pretty emotive language that's being used. Let's just do the translation that Google uh, provided, uh, first of all. So here it is. Uh, I, Emmanuel Macron, I really want to pee off the unvaccinated. Um, and uh, the, the, the way that this is being reported uh, across the press is... Uh, it makes it quite clear that he was being pretty offensive. And in fact, it resulted in uh, the uh, the French parliament being suspended again uh, for the second time, I believe, on this issue. So uh, I think Brian's going to come on to the BBC in a second on this. But, uh, uh, the, well, actually, let's bring up the definition that uh, Collins has. And you can tell us, Alex, whether you think this right is is correct. So so emerde is the is the word that they uh, that that Macron used, and they have uh, three main uh, translations for that to bug. But their example of it uses the the phrase "pee off," so uh, that's pretty clear. But uh, there's there's worse uh, on the third example there because the F word is used. So just how strong uh, a word did Macron use when he said that he wants to hassle uh, the uh, the unvaccinated? Well, the lexical core of the verb omerder is the noun merde, which uh, I know you've been in France a lot, but even if people haven't, they probably recognize what merde means. Um, so uh, with a completely neutral uh, professional translator's uh, approach to it, before I'd seen any suggested English translations, I came up with, I want to F them over. Of course, like a lot of words, it's contextual. If you talk about uh, the weather getting on your wick or bugging you, then that would be uh, merde. it gets on my nerves. Uh, but if you say you wish, especially as a president speaking to a, a, a journal, uh, that you wish to do this to the people, uh, then or a certain section of them, it, it is getting towards the territory of four-letter words. Certainly lexically, that's what's at the core of the word. I want to make their their life shit is what he's saying. Uh, so uh, the, you know the the national assembly was halted for the second night in a row uh, as they discussed this. Uh, the, the opposition party saying that Macron was using language which was unworthy, irresponsible, premeditated. Um, and, but this is, a, you know, this frankly isn't something that would happen in the British Parliament. It shouldn't really be happening in any part. It sounds more like, I don't know, some kind of tin pot dictatorship somewhere. Is, what are your thoughts on this in terms of, uh, you know, the stress that he must be under uh, with respect to getting maximum vaccination in the country? I, I see him as one of several EU member state heads of government who are really in a bind now, because uh, apart from the media opposition they're getting, they are getting legal challenges. Uh, you've mentioned what's uh, before the Assemblée Nationale, uh, a, a bill that would give all kinds of extra people the powers to play, play the policeman and check papers, please as well as to send people off to mental and, and health institutions against their will. Austria has got 40,000 objections lodged with the Council of State on its uh, obligatory jab draft. The Netherlands is in the throes of getting its cabinet finalised and uh, similar things happening there with the gratuitous police violence and live rounds that you've seen for the, the umpteenth time in Dutch cities. Well, we haven't shown that footage because it can be found easily elsewhere. 
Macron is in that kind of, of bind, really. He's under a lot of pressure because it does seem that the powers that be are leaning on certainly some of the Western European heads of government now to get their totalitarian bills in place before, I would say, before spring. Uh, but the people, you know, including the mainstream uh, of a lot of these countries are against him. And he's not prepared to accept it. He's always made a point of uh, speaking plainly, like previous French presidents, like Sarkozy, who, who use even worse language sometimes, like cache-toi. Uh, but no, he doesn't use this, this language for no purpose. I think it does show that his back is up against the wall. Uh, OK, but of course, uh, those reasons you've given aren't the only reasons that he's under pressure, because uh, we have a graph here. The French uh, Office for National Statistics, with the acronym DREES, uh, is showing that uh, the blue line on the screen, which is the number of completely vaccinated, so that's two shots people who are suffering in hospital with COVID tests, tests uh, COVID symptoms, as confirmed by positive PCR tests, they overshot the number of unjabbed people or not completely jabbed people with uh, PCR test positives in hospital. As of very early August 2021, and uh, through uh, the autumn and early winter, you see that by the, well, by, by the, the latest data, it's two, three, four times as many people uh, are, are jabbed and uh, in hospital with PCR-confirmed COVID, not that PCR tests are worth much, of course, um, than unjabbed. Uh, this this is the, the the reality of the the situation, which of course is all the more poignant, given that particularly on the continent here, a lot of heads of government and senior politicians are saying we can barely tolerate these these filthy unjabbed who are causing us such problems. Of course, Britain, if it didn't have such politi politicized statisticians, would also be bringing out figures like this. But we have better ways of massaging away uh, people who've had more than two jabs, haven't we? If you've just had your second jab, you're uh, logged as unvaccinated. If if you go into hospital with COVID complaints. Um, yeah, okay, so uh, now let's uh, then head over to uh, Canada and we've got another little bit of video here. This is just 20 seconds of French speech, but people, even with very limited French, can listen out for the keywords. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, is talking to Quebec uh, provincial television, so that's why he's talking French, uh, about what to do with the people, he says, who, who aren't up for convincing, who've said they definitely don't want to get jabbed. Listen out for the adjectives he uses to describe them. Mais il y a aussi des gens qui sont farouchement opposés à la vaccination. Qui sont extrémistes. Qui ne croient pas dans la science, qui sont souvent misogynes, souvent racistes aussi. C'est un, 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 un petit groupe, mais qui prend de la place. Et là, il faut faire un choix en tant que leader, en tant que pays. Est-ce qu'on est qu tolère ces gens-là? So to start with the last term that Trudeau uses, uh, he's, he's asking the rhetorical question, est-ce qu'on tolère ces gens-là? Ought we to put up with such people? Should we tolerate such people? And you probably heard some of the adjectives he deployed. Uh, those who refuse jabs, he says, are in many cases misogynists and racists and anti-science. And the Quebec TV interviewer suggests that they are also extremists. So this in particular in the French language seems to be a talking point. Uh, but uh, staying in Canada, we see that in fact in the same province of Quebec, the French-speaking province, uh, the uh, trains around that area, if not nationally, are requiring people to show something very reminiscent of the Second World War and the lead up to it. So uh, tweeter Dustin Johan says he's on the train to Montréal and they make you wear a yellow sticker to show you're vaccinated and it's got a handwritten number on it uh, as an anti-forgery uh, device and that stamped Christmas Eve last year. That's VIA, VIA Rail Canada, which of course is a federal 
carrier, but I don't know whether these rules apply federally. Quebec seems to be slightly in the lead there. Coming to Britain, we see the same uh, think pieces uh, come on talking points coming out. So uh, people will be well aware that The Independent, which isn't even the print newspaper anymore, has been uh, running point on uh, uh, branch Covidian theory. So here they've got a renter quote from a uh, psychological uh, expert at uh, Bristol. Interesting that they call him an expert. It's Professor Stefan, Stefan Lewandowski, Chair in Cognitive Psychology at the University of Bristol. Uh, he is using the Trudeau talking points. People are very difficult to reach. They can't be persuaded. So for a small section of hardcore refuseniks, he says, you may need to send them off to training camps. Uh, he doesn't use that language in that paragraph, but of course the de-radicalization is what the independent is running with. And he's lumping uh, people with questions about COVID jabs in with Hillary Clinton is actually a reptilian shapeshifter. It bears repeating that the word refusenik comes from the Soviet era Russian word otkaznik, which means somebody who has received a refusal by the government. In that case, refusal to leave the country. Uh, that should be borne in mind when people sling this word refusenik around. It actually means somebody whom the state has told you have no rights, you must stay put. Uh, this is spreading further into the US. So a very well-respected journal, the American uh, Political Science Review, carries this abstract by Ross Mitiga, who is at the, the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile. And his abstract uh, is entitled Political Legitimacy, Authoritarianism and Climate Change. Halfway down that abstract, he says that during the COVID-19 pandemic, severe limitations on free movement and freedom of association, think of Marcus Fish again, have become legitimate techniques of government. He's not saying arguably, he says they have become good law. Climate change poses an even graver threat to public safety, uh, says Mitiga. Consequently, I argue, legitimacy may require a similarly authoritarian approach. And he says this is unsettling, and I can imagine why, because Mitiga seems to be suggesting that a government that doesn't lock people up because of climate change uh, is not actually legitimate. He's actually flipping the script and saying, if you don't do this, you're not a responsible government. Uh, I have a couple more of the same, actually, to complete this segment. The new governor of New York, uh, who has just taken over from the disgraced Mr Cuomo, who got in a scandal with his brother, has declared that racism is a public health emergency. So if you go to the bill in question that her office at the governor has, uh, uh, governor's office has, has uh, publicised, uh, it's uh, introduced by a senator in the state's uh, legislature, but it says that the legislature of New York State hereby finds and declares that racism, think of Trudeau again, it's all lumped together, racism is a public health crisis. But then again, according to Mitiga, so is climate change. It's, it's all getting much of a muchness, isn't it? If you, if you are guilty of any of these wrong things, you are a threat to public health and the government ought to do away with you in some way. Uh, not to be outdone, Britain's own talk radio has, uh, and an, an, shall we say, within the same party as Marcus Fish, but at the other end of the scale, a quotation from the chair of the Defence Select Committee in the House of Commons. And of course, it's not reported here, but he's also uh, a lieutenant colonel in the reserve for the 77th uh, Brigade that uh, shape mines online Ill illegally. Tobias Elwood tells James of Talk Radio that if you want to avoid mandatory vaccination, well, go and get jabbed. And he says, I'd go a step further and say we need to make sure the government has a programme to say, let's now consider the fourth and the fifth jab. If, uh, just uh, to, sorry, Alex, just before we move on to the final uh, slide, 
I'll just make the point in, in light of that uh, graphic that Andrew Pollard, who's uh, the chair of the JCVI, that's Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, also from Oxford University, has uh, has come out and said that, you know, six-month boosters are a ridiculous idea, that they're not sustainable. Fourth and fifth jab shouldn't be happening. It should only, if there's going to be any targeting of anybody, it should be the vulnerable to make, you know, his argument is to make sure the vulnerable are protected. So, so I think uh, Tobias Alwood finds himself perhaps on the wrong side of the argument there. Uh, if he is, then the, the health minister who's outgoing here, Hugo de Jonge, who brought in Scottish named person policy to the Netherlands after it was ruled unlawful in the UK Supreme Court, de Jonge would be even more on the wrong side of history because as widely carried by outlets last week, he's announced proudly that he's stocking for up to six boosters for the Dutch population. And uh, currently he is slated to be sworn in any day now in the new cabinet under the same prime minister, Mark Rutte, but with a different constellation of parties. De Jonge is slated to become the minister of housing, uh, where it has not gone unnoticed that he will probably be telling people that they are irresponsible to live in houses and ought to downsize. So uh, everything's getting mashed up together. If you're thinking this is a bit too mental for you, well, it's not just your own thoughts there, because Sweden, as trailed in October, but it's just gone live as of New Year, uh, has now got a an authority for psychological defence, Müllerheten für Psychologist für and in English they have their uh, mission statement, their main mission is to coordinate and develop agencies and other actors' activities within Sweden's psychological defence. And then there's a whole paragraph you can freeze to see what psychological defence is. But the mind space has gone large. Uh, now, 12 years after Britain's Cabinet Office and the Institute for Government pioneered the idea of getting into the mind space, it's definitely been rolled out across like-minded countries such as those in Northern Europe. Yes. Okay, thank you very much for that, Alex. Now, I want to just uh, put on screen here and remind everybody about Euromomo. Uh, now, this is a website that we uh, grabbed statistics from on a regular basis during 2020 uh, and occasionally in 2021. Uh, and just to remind everybody what they say about themselves, Euromomo is a European mortality mo monitoring act, uh, activity aiming to detect and measure excess death related to seasonal influenza pandemics and other public health threats. And so the idea of it is that uh, national governments submit their data to Euromomo uh, and uh, then uh, experts can uh, compare what's going on from one country to the next uh, and see whether there's something which is happening in an individual country or whether it's happening on a more, more broadly basis, more broad basis. Uh, and of course, if we go back to, uh, I believe this was uh, May 2020, uh, we see that the UK was absolutely part of this. Uh, UK, Scotland, UK, Wales providing data, uh, UK, England providing data, UK, Northern Ireland providing data. I'm not going to uh, go into the details of what that data represents at this point in time. Um, and uh, well, that data was still being provided in 2021, about a year ago. So here is uh, Hansard uh, from uh, January to 7th of January 2021. Lord Lilly asked uh, the uh, health representative, uh, the government health representative, the government minister in the House of Lords. My Lords, perhaps I can break with convention and the advice I was given when I first entered Parliament and ask a question which I do not already know the answer, to which I do not already know the answer. Every week the government submits figures to Euromomo for deaths from all causes. During the spring, the figures showed a huge level of excess deaths over the normal, uh, but currently and in recent weeks, right up to the end of last year, they show almost no excess over the normal level of deaths in this country. Uh, that conflicts with all the evidence we're seeing from hospitals and elsewhere. Can my noble Fred, friend 
uh, reconcile the figures and the facts. Uh, and this was uh, really one of the, the key points because when we looked at Euromomo detail, uh, details, Euromomo data, uh, there were absolutely discrepancies between what uh, the British government was putting out and what was appearing on Euromomo. So that was January last year. And by the way, uh, Lord Lilly didn't get a, a proper answer from uh, the government representative. Uh, this is from November 2021, the all-cause mortality surveillance doc report from the UK Health Security Agency. And you can see there, there that they're talking about excess all-cause mortality in subpopulations UK, uh, and they're referring to Euromomo and the Euromomo algorithm. Um, so in November 2021, we apparently were still giving data uh, to Euromomo. But thank you very much to the person that tipped me off to this. Uh, but apparently we are not, no longer, or at least England, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland apparently are no longer giving data to Euromomo. Scotland still is. Um, and what's particularly interesting about this is that uh, if you go to this section of the Euromomo website with the big graph of Europe on it, uh, at the top is a slider that you can use your mouse to slide backwards in time. Uh, and in fact, all the data for those countries has disappeared, uh, even though it was there uh, before Christmas or a year ago or two years ago. Um, so you can go back to 2020 and try to look for the, the information that I was showing on the screen a couple of seconds ago, and it's no longer there. So, uh, Alex, I, I, I know you won't have an answer to this, uh, but, uh, you know, th this is very strange to me. I wonder whether it's Brexit related, although the fact that the Republic of Ireland doesn't seem to be giving data implies that it's not Brexit related. Maybe it's just a bug on their website. I, I don't know the answer to it. I couldn't find any statement from from the UK government or from Euromomo saying that the, the data was no longer going to be provided. So, but there's obviously consequences to that because uh, that becomes much harder for analysts to, to analyze or to make a judgment about what's going on in the UK compared to other European countries. Well, that the Dublin authorities, the HSE, have been leaned upon by English authorities because we do see the more we look, uh, less independence in Ireland for these regards than, than you might have assumed. But I would wager that what's really behind this is one man, the man who brought down the last Dutch government a year ago, the dissident uh, a member of parliament, Peter Omotzicht, because he is hammering the outgoing Dutch cabinet right now with questions about excess mortality. And they are so nervous about him that when they were having their cabinet discussions recently, uh, a note leaked out uh, in which the most radical party that's now uh, going to dominate the cabinet, D66, had scrawled on a piece of paper, get Omotzicht out of parliament. Parliament, give him a position somewhere else. So if one member of parliament in one European state can bring down a government potentially twice in a year by asking the right questions on excess mortality, I wouldn't put anything past the British and Irish, or Irish authorities to remove data and make it invisible. Okay, well, if we could just put that, uh, that um, map back on screen for one second. Um, the other thing I just wanted to highlight before we move on, Brian, was of course, we've just covered Macron going nuts over uh, immunization status and whatnot. But look at all the look at the color of all the countries. It's it's a very light blue, um, and uh, in fact, it seems to be France seems to be the lowest. Uh, no excess mortality whatsoever in France, according to the Euromomo data. Uh, same in Italy and and most of Europe, uh, and very little excess mortality in the low countries. So, what? What? Why is Macron getting so excited? 
uh, because they're not telling the truth across the board. So we can now see, surely, Mike, that you cannot trust governments, whether it's UK or France, to tell the truth at any level. We've discovered this with ONS. ONS is still not uh, revealing connections between themselves and the full fact organisation. UK column put in freedom of information request to ask about the uh, exchange of secondees from full fact to the ONS, sorry, from the ONS to full fact. And uh, we, we still haven't got a proper response. So it's clear that there's an orchestrated cover up and manipulation of data. It's clear. Um, okay, uh, Alex, then uh, BBC now and uh, Maidstone mother drives to Italy to get, to get daughter jabbed. Is this, is this anything other than an egregious propaganda? This is gaslighting to the nth degree, Mike. Look at what this Italian-British dual citizen, Mrs. Colombo, says about why she wanted to get her 13-year-old, sorry, her 9-year-old jabbed in Italy where this is allowed. Um, she says, why would I not give protection to the most precious thing in the world to me, my daughter, rather than run the risk of her turning round to me in 5, 10, 15 years time saying, mum, I've got heart problems, I've got brain problems, I've got lung problems. This is this really takes the biscuit, doesn't it? Uh, a renter quote from a mother who says, I'm so worried that my currently preteen daughter will get brain, heart or lung problems that I must get her jabbed. I, I don't know what words fail me in the, in this particular situation, especially if you do uh, a quick internet search for Pfizer and Maddie, M-A-D-D-I-E, you will find details of a now 13-year-old 30, girl, 12 at the time of the trial, named Maddie Dagarai, D-E space G-A-R-A-Y, who was one of the 63 children who were volunteered by their parents in that superheroes campaign that we show, uh, publicized recently uh, by Pfizer to get the 12 to 15 trials running for their uh, COVID shot. She had horrible lifelong debilitation and the way Pfizer uh, massaged her out of the figures so that they wouldn't have to extrapolate that one in 63 recipients of her age would get these life-changing debilitations. That really is something. But of course, the BBC has managed to turn that on its head again. Uh, over to New Zealand, the Catholic Herald, again, picking up something which is from a New Zealand-specific site. They have a tireless campaigner down there of Dutch or uh, South African extraction who has managed to use the equivalent of freedom of information legislation, uh, official information, I think it's called in New Zealand, to find out the following. Well, the, what's on screen right now is not COVID specific. It is that at the end of 2019, conveniently, New Zealand was the latest of the English speaking jurisdictions to bring in legalised euthanasia, although very few doctors and hospitals in that uh, country, which is small enough as it is, only a handful of doctors and hospitals said they would go along with it. Uh, the Catholic Herald notes that doctors do receive a government fee of $1,000 plus expenses for everyone they kill. But if you tap that again, you will see the new element, which is COVID related. In response to a New Zealand equivalent of an FOI request, the New Zealand, Minist New Zealand Ministry of Health confirmed that this scheme or this uh, legalisation, it's not lawful, but it is legal, would or could uh, apply to patients who are either dying from COVID or this very elastic term that we find in the low countries all the time, suffering unbearably, which by this stage in Belgium and the Netherlands also includes mental suffering, which is unquantifiable uh, on a doctor's say-so. So they've confirmed that in some circumstances, a person with COVID-19 may be eligible for assisted dying. And this is courtesy of the wonderfully named Henoch Klosterboer, who, ad who edits an anti-euthanasia publication in New Zealand called uh, The Defender, a website in New Zealand. So rather concerning, to say the least, something like a New Zealand T4 programme. 
Uh, also of note over the winter season, this is actually from the 1st of November, but we've only just become aware of it, is that one of the two senators for Wisconsin, uh, Senator Johnson, held an evidence gathering session with expert witnesses uh, regarding the um, uh, treatment, or the uh, particularly by the drug companies and the regulators in these states, uh, of those who have suffered adverse effects from COVID jabs. And in the clip you're about to hear, a lady named Brian Dressen, whose name will appear on the slide after the uh, video so you can find out how to search for her, is giving testimony to Senator Johnson uh, on the 1st of November. In the clip in question here, she does refer to that a very unfortunate girl, Maddie, whom Pfizer tried to make disappear from the figures. Uh, she's talking here about the CDC and the FDA. We have literally asked and we have begged repeatedly for them to acknowledge these reactions. They declined. They know about their lack. They know that their lack of acknowledgement has recreated, created insurmountable barrier to our ability to receive medical care from doctors who rely on these agencies for information. They know about the issues with the clinical trials. They know about the deaths. They know about the lack of follow-up on VARES. They know about the injuries to children. They know about Maddie. I have discussed Maddie with them. They know about the mandates imposed on the injured. They know about the suicides as the results of months-long suffering. They know about the aggressive censorship. They know about the media censorship. They know about the scientific censorship. They know all of it. And just after that segment, Brian Dressens adds that they, they, which is the CDC and the FDA, have known all this for months. Later in that clip, which is well worth finding in full, easily found online, but if you search for her name, she becomes very tearful because she reads out the personal farewell note from a friend, a fellow sufferer of adverse reactions who did commit suicide. So it wasn't rhetoric when Brian Dressen said that the CDC and FCA, FDA have caused suicides to happen through their negligence. Now, regarding her testimony, one commentator on one upload said the following, of course, we cannot verify this person's uh, experience, but taking it at face value, the comment is this, typical, someone gets an adverse reaction, I don't know whether this is regarding uh, Brian Dressen herself or Maddie Degarai, who was mentioned in the clip, and in order to make the numbers of their study reflect what is the desired outcome, they cut them from the trial. I have been a biomedical researcher and this capitals absolutely happens all the time. There you are. I don't think that's the only biomedical researcher who would say that in such stark terms. And uh, Alex, perhaps we just remind people that, of course, in that clip, the lady was mentioning VAERS, the American Data Collection System, but in UK, the MHRA, which has been collecting the yellow card vaccine adverse effect, effect data has still produced no documentary evidence to show that they've investigated the uh, uh, over 1 million adverse effects and some 1,800 plus deaths. Still no investigation by the MHRA um, to show which of those effects were caused by the, by the so-called vaccine and which weren't. So this, this is... Um, this is not a mistake. I don't think this is negligence. We have got culpable organizations that are deliberately hiding the truth from the public. This is criminal activity by people who are in positions of power to protect the uh, 
health of the, of the public. Well, that's right. She said uh, no follow-up on the VERS data. We've got no follow-up on the MHRA data. So that begins to look like policy on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, and it makes sense, of course, because the, the result is that we are ignoring uh, the immense data about horrific vaccine adverse reactions, including death. And uh, now we're handing out gongs to the team that have created this web of lies. Um, okay, uh, we'll move on. If you like what the UK column is doing, if you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And we just say once again that uh, if you are watching our content for free, uh, we do need your financial support. And if you're able to help us out there, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, also, uh, uh, do share our material you find on the various platforms. Um, and uh, we'll just give a very brief reminder, of course, hoodies are still available on the UK Column shop. And it's chilly, so this yes. is a good decision. And can we just mention uh, people who were kind enough to send us small gifts before Christmas? We did get some really excellent coffee. Um, so you know who you are. There are, in fact, two, uh, two different people that sent us uh, coffee. Really excellent. Thank you both very much for that. Uh, okay, Alex uh, Bosnia. Yes, this is the first of several brief announcements. People can freeze the screen for more details. BIH News uh, from Bosnia and Herzegovina is reporting that a lawyer, Mirnes Ayanovic, has defeated Bosnia's weak federal government because Bosnia is composed of cantons, the Serb canton and the Croat and Muslim canton. Uh, he's, he's defeated the vaccine passports by dint of getting Republika Srpska, the Serb canton within Bosnia, not to allow uh, a, a COVID passport, making proper constitutional arguments. And this has had a knock-on at federal level. So Bosnia is now uh, an Eastern European state at the other end of the scale from other Eastern European states, such as Lithuania, where you can't breathe without, without a COVID pass. It proves that the right things can be done, and sometimes smaller and weaker jurisdictions are actually better for preserving liberty. Uh, also in cheering news, uh, those who've watched uh, UK, sorry, uh, 21st century um, Wire and particularly listen to the Sunday Wire will know about the case of the academic um, uh, in question, Mark Crispin Miller. Well, he has now been cleared by his university after a completely spurious charge uh, of breaking university rules by speaking his mind. And uh, he's actually going on the warpath now. He's suing the academics in question. So do go and have a look at his story. And other academics under similar pressure may take heart from that. In further announcements, if you can move on to the next slide. Uh, this is one I think very worth a mention. We talked about the wrecking of the Irish healthcare system. Uh, there's a lady in Ireland, Gronia McCulloch, I've become aware of, who needs a, a European doctor's report in order to get any chance of her being homed uh, in a house where she doesn't have to wreck her back, uh, lifting her son Patrick up, up the stairs to sleep. So if you tap that again, you will see, first of all, uh, the background to the case, her son, Brian, who got sepsis in 2017, and uh, she's been uh, housed in a completely unsuitable place with a, having to sleep in the sitting room uh, in her father's. And if you tap that again, you will see that an update of just before New Year is that if she manages to make another €1,200, Euro, she will close her fundraiser on GoFundMe and she will be able to get a European doctor's report to have some chance of getting uh, her son housed in a place where she doesn't have to carry him up the stairs. This is uh, unspeakable, but uh, there you are. That's, that's what Ireland has, has come to. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid not just Ireland too, but uh, well, I'm very well uh, willing to do that out of loyalty to our Irish viewers, who are some of our, the best we have. 
Also over the Christmas and New Year break, I have released the first of a three-part conversation with my father on the crucial theme of literacy, which is re relevant to us all as we realise we're not getting educated by anyone else. We're going to have to do it ourselves. My father gives us uh, a deep history into how we had to do it all ourselves in the old days, teach ourselves to read. We start off in part one with why, and in the coming uh, days, we'll be putting up parts two and three. At the very end of this clip, uh, the, the first part of the uh, the conversation, which is already transcribed and up, my father notes that the current bishops of the Church of England are trying to destroy it before the dissidents take it over from within. And this is something that really struck a chord with me, actually, as explaining quite a few of the institutional messes that we're in at the moment. Uh, and you'll find out later in the news that this, the, the, the issue of secession in the US is in this category. It does seem that people uh, who realise the game is up in some of the Western institutions want to wreck them before real people take them over and revert them to what they're historically meant to be. Um, a further announcement from me is that I now have a Telegram channel. So I have one up on all the others in the UK column. Patrick, of course, runs one for the 21st Century Wire. The direct link is t.me slash East App, or you can search on Telegram for Eastern Approaches Alex Thompson. As you can see on screen, I will be giving people daily constitutional education from uh, W. Cleon Skousen's classic book, The Making of America, which is relevant to all English-speaking countries, actually, not just America. Um, and on uh, Sundays, I'm doing Christian readings as well. So there we are. That's that. And then uh, one of our viewers who has suddenly decided to come into the limelight, it's doing him a lot of good, is Rory D. Clark, also very much, much worth subscribing to. Uh, Rory D. Clark Telegram. Uh, he describes himself as a philosophical dissident, and there he is. He started off his readings on video channels by reading Ian Davis's uh, excellent piece recently on the coming tyranny, and he's going from strength to strength, so I think he's very deserving of support there. Uh, also, if you uh, wish to uh, listen to some of the best Belgian views at the moment on the danger of boosters, virologist and vaccinologist Dr. Geert von den Bosse, uh, often called Van den Bosch with the wrong pronunciation in English, but that might be how people know his name, has given a very good interview to the Dutch dissident channel Black Box, which has now got English subtitles if you click the CC icon at the bottom of the video pane. And he's saying on screen that here at this point that the reason why other virologists and vaccinologists are not speaking out is that they're arrogant and that arrogance is a very, very dangerous weapon. This is a top quality interview. It really requires an evening's thought to listen to what Geert van der Bosse has to say. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. I'll just add that the David Noakes fundraiser uh, is now over 43,000. The target's 50,000. David Noakes is still going to need that financial support to uh, finally get clear of the uh, uh, legal system. charges against him in the French system. So if you haven't donated to that, please consider, and of course, a worthy cause that uh, Alex has just put up. Uh, well, let's focus in on BBC and uh, this reporting around the Ghislaine Maxwell uh, verdict. This we had up on Monday. Nobody is above the law. But of course, the BBC has got to get in and crow. So um, this is uh, the image that uh, has come in big. And uh, this is Emily Maitlis now. Um, really self-publicity. I think this is what this is. Uh, my Prince Andrew, Emily Maitlis on the jaw-dropping TV interview, critical to sexual assault case. So um, I want people to really think about what's going on here, because it looks as though the BBC is now in on the game of getting involved in court cases. And uh, 
what they say is going to influence the outcome of the case. Uh, so let's uh, follow through this a little bit. So with these very powerful images, uh, she's got a separate text box which said we went into that interview knowing that we would have one chance to get it right, one chance to provide a record of testimony, one chance to offer up a first person account. Did they offer this service to anybody else, Mike, around uh, this case? Uh, not around this case, but of course they did offer it to Richard Dearman. <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah. Uh, so let's have a look at some of the details. So these, these are some of the things said. The answers he gave me on camera may have seemed astonishingly jaw-dropping even in places, but bizarrely, I, I had been expecting them. We talked through the things he wanted to say earlier. This gives us a clue as the sort of relationship between the BBC. She says, so part of my job that day was to just let him speak, to let him explain to the world his own version of events. Well, this... Not this, to challenge them at all. Uh, not to challenge them, no, just <laughs> to give him publicly paid broadcasting time to tell his version of the event. We met the Duke in the days before the interview took place. We were invited right into the heart of Buckingham Palace, his office rooms in what felt like the eaves of the palace. It was there under a sloping roof around a mahogany table that we were treated to tea in dainty bone china cups with a royal crest. This is very cosy stuff, isn't it? What was discussed? Where are the minutes of, of this cosy tea drinking meeting? Uh, they don't exist. They don't exist, no. It was there that the Duke shook my hand, sat down and explained he was going to tell us why he believed the photograph of him and Miss Guthrie showing Prince Andrew with his arm around her was likely a doctored fake. So this is getting the real information out. There were phone calls between the palace and several of my producers. So this is, this is not a uh, I'm coming in to ask you questions so we can get to the truth about what was going on. This is, this is set piece theatre. There were phone calls between the palace and several of my producers, but the point of the interview was not to catch him out. I can't stress this enough. The point of the interview was just to have a record of Prince Andrew's own version of events. He wanted to set his own record straight. He offered minutiae an anecdote, detail and description, and we were ready to hear it all. So where is the record of this? Where is the record of everything he said to the BBC? Well, of course, the public isn't going to see it. But let's remind ourselves, it took the Daily Star back in 2013. We showed this on Monday. Royal cover-up, police censor Jimmy Savile interview transcript. And what did the uh, newspaper bring up? That uh, the fact was that when the police were supposedly investigating Savile in 2009, uh, it was Buckingham Palace. Uh, that vetted the documents and all of the serial sex attackers' royal connections were removed. So we're going to ask the question, should the UK public believe a word the BBC or the palace says on the subject of child abuse? I'd say the answer to that is no. Um, we just remind people that the UK column, um, uh, this is back in 2015 and just prior to that, uh, where there was abuse of youngsters at Oxford and Cherwell Valley College. We interviewed the whistleblower. We interviewed survivors. We produced written evidence. And uh, what happened was uh, BBC Radio 4 got in touch with us. Uh, but that took an interesting turn of events. Uh, if you go on the UK Column website, you can find the article I'm about to put up on the screen. 
Uh, but essentially, we said that we were alone in exposing serious sexual and physical abuse of youngsters at Oxford and Cherwell Valley College. Uh, but we also reported this. The sickening child abuses were also covered up by the BBC after a reporter, Nicholas Stanbridge at Radio 4, made contact with the UK column and showed great interest in investigating. Having arranged for her to examine documentary evidence and meet victims, Ms. Stanbridge then abruptly cancelled the, meet the meeting. Her initial excuse was that she'd met all the authorities perpetrating the cover-up and said, well, they'd explained everything. But under pressure, uh, she admitted that she was pulled off the case. So quite clear that the moment you bring the subject to the abuse of youngsters or minors in front of the BBC, you've got to be very careful what this sickening organisation is going to do. And even The Guardian picked up on this back in 2015 when it was talking about the sinister treatment of dissent at the BBC. Uh, nobody from John Humphreys in the morning to Evan Davis at night dares mention a scandal at the BBC. It undermines their reporting of every abuse whistleblowers reveal. It reinforces the dirty common sense of British life that you must keep your head down if you want to keep your job. The scandal is this. The BBC is forcing out or demoting the journalists who exposed Jimmy Savile as a voracious abuser of girls. As Marion Jones put it to me, there is a small group of powerful people at the BBC who think it would have been better if the truth about Savile had never come out and they aim to punish the reporters who revealed it. And of course, none of this was ever full, fully investigated. No, and, and I mean, the point here is that you're conflating uh, the Savile situation with, uh, the, with Prince Andrew because A, the BBC was involved in both, but also Savile had very close connections to the royal family. Correct, absolutely. But let's take it further because this one escaped many people. This happened over the Christmas period uh, where the BBC had to... Uh, print an apology after they did an interview with Alan Dershowitz. So the BBC said here the interview with Epstein ex-lawyer broke their own editorial standards. Uh, let's bring a bit of the detail in on screen. Uh, the BBC says, says an interview with lawyer Alan Dershowitz after the conviction with Ghislaine Maxwell did not meet its editorial standards. Maxwell was found guilty of recruiting and trafficking young girls to be sexually abused of the late US financier Jeffrey Epstein. Mr. Dershowitz used to be a lawyer for Epstein and has himself been accused of sexual abuse by one of the accusers. So this is the man that the BBC brought in on screen. Let's just have a little look at the interview with Mr. Dershowitz and see what the BBC provided him worldwide free broadcasting to say. Let's look at this clip. Well, let's uh, get more analysis of that verdict now. We can speak to constitutional lawyer Alan Dershowitz, who joins us now. Um, this uh, was a much-watched trial, uh, and after a long uh, set of deliberations spanning Christmas with a, a break, uh, suddenly the, 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 the jury uh, reached a verdict. Well, I think the most important thing, particularly for British workers, is that the um, government uh, was very careful who it used as witnesses. It did not use as a witness 
the woman who accused Prince Andrew, accused me, accused many other people, because the government didn't believe she was telling the truth. In fact, she, Virginia Gouffre, was mentioned in the trial as somebody who brought young people to Epstein for him to abuse. And so this case does nothing at all to strengthen in any way the case against Prince Andrew. Indeed, it weakens the case against Prince Andrew considerably because the government was very selective in who it used. It used only witnesses who they believed were credible, credible, and they deliberately didn't use the main witness, the, the woman who started the whole investigation, uh, Virginia Gouffre, because ultimately they didn't believe she was telling the truth. They didn't believe that a jury would believe her, and they were right in doing so. So it was very smart on the part of the government. Uh, 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 and yet the uh, the the version, the image that was portrayed of Glenn Maxwell as a sophisticated predator is the one that the jury have agreed with. Well, the jury agreed that uh, she helped Jeffrey Epstein in his activities. Uh, and, and the question then is whether or not uh, she will be sentenced as if she were Jeffrey Epstein or sentenced as if she were simply somebody who facilitated and helped. And the other question is, who else will be charged? Because the testimony introduced evidence that other people were guilty and involved. So the BBC gave him absolutely free license to put over this view of the case. Somebody in the comments has said denigrating uh, victims identified in the case. Uh, they just give him free advertising time. Uh, but if we look at the apology, we we'll just bring this on screen. Um, the BBC really says, well, it was a simple mistake. We had no idea really who this man was. This is not credible, Mike, when the BBC does this. And notice how a key part of that was this defence of uh, Prince Andrew by a man who was involved with the Epstein case himself. So luckily, we now have some comments. Uh, this is picked up on the, on the wider media. Uh, but we got John Nicholson, SMP, the Shadow Culture Secretary. Former so, BBC man himself, of course. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, the BBC is right to apologise. Interviewing Dershowitz was a mistake. Failing to contextualise, he's one of those who has been accused, was even worse. So at least he picked it up. Um, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, but also a big thank you for uh, Nadia Whitone, because she said this. I can't believe this needs to be said, i.e. the apology needs to be said, but the BBC should not give a platform to people accused of child sexual abuse. Totally agree with that. So let's just remind ourselves what uh, the Maitland interview was doing here, because have I got it wrong? Prince Andrew accused. Yes. Accused? He may not be guilty, but accused of sex with a minor. Yes. And so Dershowitz and Prince Andrew, just given this... this uh, uh, worldwide broadcastability. I, I think this is wrong, and I think the BBC needs to be actively challenged by people over it. Any thoughts, Alex? I don't think the BBC will learn the error of its ways until it gets an order of magnitude more criticism about things like this. Instead of two MPs, how about 200? Yeah. Uh, and more to the point, uh, a withdrawal of uh, licence fee money. We're told that a million people are now withholding their licenses. And again, an order of magnitude better. Why not 10 million? Yeah, yeah. thank you.
Okay, so let's uh, let's bring. Well, I'm sorry to do this, but let's bring the eyes uh, on screen. So here is uh, is uh, Tony Blair himself, uh, and uh, this is Daily Mail comment. And I thought it was interesting that the Daily Mail is commenting on this as an editorial comment. Uh, award that mocks the memory of her dead. And what do they say? Well, they say compare the relative magnitude of these prime ministerial wrongdoings. Boris Johnson allowed a couple of cheese and wine parties to be held at Downing Street in possible contravention of COVID restrictions. Tony Blair, via his chief of staff, Jonathan Powell, allegedly ordered ministers to destroy evidence from the Attorney General that the Iraq war could be illegal. He then uh, gulled Parliament into backing uh, action via a dodgy dossier of doctored evidence, a deception that ultimately cost countless lives. And the upshot, Mr. Johnson's Highland critics say he should resign. Mr. Blair has been elevated to the order of the Garter and is now entitled to call himself Sir Tony. Well, of course, he, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he's quite entitled to do that yet because he hasn't actually gone through the investiture yet. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, that doesn't stop. Although the Daily Mail's editorial comment was that, uh, I just thought it was interesting if we look at the, the article that Daily Mail published about Jeff Hoon uh, and the claims that, uh, that he had, was ordered to destroy documents. Um, in this article, they... They insist in calling Tony Blair Sir Tony. So, you know, Sir Tony Blair. So he, anyway, that's what they say. Um, so this article here is uh, labeled as an exclusive by the mail. Uh, but in fact, what they're really talking about is allegations that uh, Jeff Hoon made in his book, uh, which was released before Christmas, as far as I know. Uh, and uh, so uh, the book's called uh, See How They Run and, and is basically uh, accusing uh, the Blair government or Tony Blair personally of of getting his chief of staff to call, uh, require them to to uh, burn secret memos and so on um, and of course uh, Alex that echoes in a sense what happened with Catherine Gunn because she left GCHQ or was fired from GCHQ having blown the whistle on uh, the NSA email uh, which came in which was attempting to get uh, GCHQ to gather information against. Uh, non-permanent members of the Security Council so that the Americans could bribe them into uh, agreeing to issue a, a, a Security Council resolution on the Iraq war. She uh, was kicked out of her role and prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act and then appeared in court uh, only to discover that the case was being dropped because uh, you know documents similar to the ones that uh, Jeff Hoon was ordered to destroy uh, were being asked for under disclosure for her case and suddenly the whole thing was dropped. So, you know, Tony, it's interesting that the Jeff Hoon allegation is, is getting uh, coverage once again. As a It's good as a result of, uh, of Tony Blair's invest, well, future investiture in this uh, order of the Garter. But uh, there, there are so many questions that just have not been answered fully yet. It's, uh, next year will be 20 years since all of this might and yes, it's so fresh in my mind, and people are still covering their backsides, aren't they? Uh, the other part of why Catherine Gunn had the case against her dropped by the Crown's Prosecution Service is one that I saw inside GCHQ. Catherine herself, uh, now a, a trusted colleague of mine in the free media, um, has said that, and through her lawyer, she's found out about the story you just outlined of people uh, being worried about disclosure of documents. What we were told internally at the time is that the Crown Prosecution Service feared a repeat uh, of the Belgrano trial where uh, Clive Ponting was freed because the jury correctly exercised its powers of jury nullification and they were petrified of that happening again. Uh, so the the other part of what I would say is that uh, 
Jeff Hoon, who's now portraying himself as one of the good guys in 2003, uh, not quite so. Uh, Summer 2003, I went to a meeting in his recently formally vacated private suite uh, in Whitehall at the Ministry of Defence. I reached to uh, get some tea bags to make myself a brew, and one of my MOD colleagues said, watch out, Alex, that cupboard hasn't been cleaned out of strychnine yet. I said, what do you mean? He said, it used to be the goon's private office, and there's still people around here who've got it in for him. So he was right on message in the lead up to the Iraq war, whatever he protests now. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, which brings us on then to uh, to change.org and the petition. And we had a couple of emails in, so I just want to show this one first of all. Uh, I wonder, this from Nicola, I wonder if in fact it's a good idea to encourage signing the change.org petition to remove Blair's gong. Uh, Hugo from Hugo Talks puts it well, and, he, and, and the, the uh, link is there for it. Uh, and uh, this is where the link takes us to the Hugo Talks website. Uh, you're still playing into their game. And what Hugo Talks is basically suggesting here is where what he's done is he's highlighting uh, who is the money behind change.org and suggesting that uh, people shouldn't be signing the petition uh, because of that. Uh, so let's just uh, look at another communication from uh, this time Paul. Uh, did you know that amongst others, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation invested in change.org in 2017? Makes me wonder why. Uh, as anything uh, they are involved with is dodgy to say the least. I did sign the petition regarding Tony Blair, but this particular title uh, is chosen by the Queen. I don't think the little people stand a chance, but we shall see. Um, so let's just have a look at uh, where the uh, numbers were at uh, earlier on. Here's change.org, uh, the petition website, Tony Blair to have his knight companion of the noble or most noble order of the Garter rescinded. Uh, and that was sitting at uh, over 700,000. I think that was at about 10 a.m. this morning. I'm sure it's quite, I mean, it was ticking up again quite fast. So I'm sure that uh, that will continue. Now, of course, as to the question of do, did we know and do we know who is behind change.org? Uh, well, yes, we, did, we do and we did. Uh, and in fact, this is uh, the 15th of December, 2016, uh, the UK column news and uh, one of Brian's wiring diagrams uh, from that episode. So this is before the Bill and Melinda Gates money, uh, and we were absolutely showing the the money behind uh, change.org. But look, here's the thing. Um, change.org has been set up as, as some kind of, well, it's claimed some kind of mechanism to increase engagement in democracy. But we might look at it as being two, two things, really. One is a public uh, opinion gathering machine, uh, and you've got two sides of the coin on that. You've got the people that might agree with or the petitions that are on the site, petitions and in inverted commas that are on the site that, that are promoting ideas that the, that the uh, funders would agree with or be aligned with. And then you've got people that are uh, promoting petitions on the site that the funders wouldn't necessarily be aligned with. And either way, um, it, Alex, it seems to me that a site like that is about, uh, on one hand, them uh, trying to garner support for a particular policy agenda. On the other hand, they're trying to uh, establish what is the level of, of disagreement or the level of opposition to a particular policy. But it seems to me that it doesn't really matter who's funding this particular platform. It's a platform, it's there, it's used by many, many people. And if people actually want to stand up and make their opinion heard, whether it has any uh, actual impact on the, on the, uh, the result or not is irrelevant. People, we have to find ways to get our voices heard, and that is a channel that we can use. 
Yeah. It's got a very long pedigree in many democracies, and before we were a democracy, even petitioning, and it's uh, in its ultimate form, it's serving a writ. Uh, so it has some real clout in common law, uh, not this particular one I'm suggesting, uh, I'm not suggesting that, but uh, it's how uh, redress of grievances is sought. The less democratic we are, the more important it becomes. And what possible harm can it do, even if the site was owned by Satan himself, if we were able, able to get it into seven figures? Uh, what possible harm is there in uh, a situation whereby Tony Blair can be confronted by a passerby or even a brave interviewer and asked, why is it that over a million people want you stripped of the Order of the Garter? Uh, well, one of the possible harms that people are worried about, of course, is that one of the things they ask for is your postcode. Uh, and... Uh... But, you know, Alex, it seems to me that if, if it's, it's time for people to, to stick their heads above the parapet a bit here, if people aren't prepared, if we aren't prepared to put our blooming postcode on a form on a website, uh, we're, well, we're Tony, Blair, Tony Blair's won the argument yeah. at, at, at that point. So, yeah, absolutely. Don't give in to the fear. This is the opportunity for millions of people in this country to show how much they dislike Tony Blair for what he did and a brilliant opportunity. So yeah, we know what the organization is, but use its facilities. Right, well, let's move on now to Prince Charles. And uh, well, Prince Charles is the feature on uh, the next issue of uh, Newsweek. Here he is, uh, climate change issue, special climate change issue, Brian. And of course, who do you go to? You go to Prince Charles. Our children are judging us. Well, that's not quite what he said. And I'm hoping Alex can translate this for me because I'm not entirely sure that I understand it. Uh, so here's what he actually said. The time is now. This is how he ends the article. The time is now. The eyes of our children and grandchildren are judging us. Uh, let, our, let ours be the generation that can and does. Now, you might say that uh, the eyes of the children are on us or, or, or so, and that might be one turn of phrase that sort of makes sense. But this didn't really make sense. How can the eyes of our children and grandchildren judge us, Alex? If I had come out with that during my postgraduate interpreting diploma, I would have been told this is not a collocation in the English language. Go back and swat up some more from the dictionary. It's not a known phrase in English, and it makes no logical sense in any language idiomatically. Yes. So, uh, so I don't really understand that one at all. So anyway, here is uh, Newsweek's uh, article on their website. Exclusive Prince Charles says our children are judging us on climate change. Uh, and uh, just very briefly, Alex, you know, it's full of the usual language. It's pretty much echoing what he said at uh, COP26. He's talking about putting, on a, putting the world on a war footing to deal with this problem. He's talking about man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it today. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. All the usual stuff that he said at, uh, at uh, COP26. But my question then is... Um, should the future monarch uh, be uh, pushing this kind of thing as hard as he is, or should he be more worried about what's going on in this country, uh, you know, in terms of uh, domestic policy and, and politics in this country and the role of the monarchy in this country? Well, he's been heir apparent his whole life, you know, over six decades. Uh, he's been trained most of that time. Uh, he knows what the contents of his coronation oath are going to be. It's to govern us according to our laws and customs. They may be fiddling with his coronation oath, as there seems to have been with the Queen's, uh, but that's the core of it. It's not to solve the world's problems or to, to bring climate salvation. It's to govern us according to the laws and customs we already possess. So abuses on that front are his first priority, surely. Uh, so, but he seems to be pushing an internationalist uh, policy agenda. 
there's very little he says these days about Britain. It's notable, isn't it? Mm. Sometimes a thing or two about the Commonwealth following after his mother. Very little about Britain and, and certainly you know, not, not much about the British people and their common law. Yeah, but the Commonwealth's become an internationalist organisation as well. Sorry. No, no, it's fine, Carl. No, that was all I was going to say. Well, I, I just say perhaps it's time that people really consider whether we should, we should have a petition that this man is unsuitable for king. That might be an interesting petition. Yes. Um, okay, well, let's move on to defence then. And we're going to start off with defence news, uh, because, and you'll see why in a second. Uh, but this is the headline of defence news. Porcupines at sea. British lawmakers signed the alarm on the Royal Navy. Alex. For the second time this news, Tobias Elwood features, now in his capacity as chair of the Defence Select Committee in the Commons. And uh, the photograph brought on by Andrew Shooter's article there in Defence News was of a gentleman in Japan waving the Union flag as a, as a destroyer uh, finishes her visit there. Tap that again and you'll see that Andrew Shooter, who's a very good writer on defence actually, uh, better than any of the, the, the London titles seem to have, is reporting on how concerned the Defence Committee is. We're going to need a bigger navy, uh, problems related to capabilities, problems related to fleet size. Here comes Elwood uh, pulling no punches on the next tap. He says that, uh, if you tap that again, yes, when ships do get to sea, there is a very um, uh, compact uh, and admission gentleman, isn't there, that most of the time ships are not seaworthy in the Royal Navy. Elwood says that when they do get to sea, they act like porcupines well-defended herbivores with limited offensive capabilities. This, says Elwood, is a result of decisions by successive governments to limit budgets, that's the key, limit Navy budgets, and to prioritise defensive capabilities. Sorry, that's uh, the reports, but it's, it's, it's Elwood's who's chairing it, so it may as well have been his own words because he signed off on it. Um, so this is very interesting. They're going to limit uh, the defence budgets. Uh, but have a look at this. Uh, this is uh, happening today. Uh, the Lord's debate on the Ukrainian Navy Agreement. Did you hear about a Ukrainian Navy Agreement? I didn't. I admitted that to you this morning. So uh, I think we're generally pretty well informed. This is quite extraordinary. So, so here is the agreement. This is the framework agreement between the government of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the government of Ukraine on official credit support for the development of the capabilities of the Ukrainian Navy. So we're, we're limiting the budget for the UK Navy. We're our ships are porcupines, according to some people. Uh, they're rusting hulks. They're they can't go to sea. The engines sea. don't work. Yes. So this framework agreement is a treaty, uh, and it is currently uh, under scrutiny, as you've seen by the House of Lords today, but also by the Commons as well. And that scrutiny period is scheduled to end on the 11th of January this year, at which point it will be ratified, uh, and the, uh, the deal will be done. So the credits are going to be used uh, for the financing of contracts signed with UK suppliers, which will then include goods and services of UK origin, representing 50% of the value of the relevant contract in Ukraine. And the purpose of the agreement is to bolster Ukraine's naval capabilities by providing uh, the framework of £1.7 billion of loans uh, to enable the Ukraine to publish, uh, to purchase, sorry, two British minesweeper vessels to retrofit UK weapon systems to existing vessels, uh, to to, uh, for specified UK contractors to work with Ukraine to build eight missile ships and a frigate. Uh, the package also includes consultancy and technical support for the building of naval infrastructure, including the delivery of equipment. Uh, a bilateral agreement, a treaty was necessary because the standard UK, uh, sorry, standard Ukrainian procurement rules would not have allowed Ukraine to make a single source contract award. 
and the agreement contains commitments of, from both parties to fight against corruption on international commercial transactions. So that should, that's fantastic stuff. And it will enter into force on the day that both parties have confirmed that the relevant domestic procedures have been completed, which in the UK's case uh, will be the 11th. So, Alex, I'm interested in your thoughts on this um, because, uh, you know, we are busy uh, providing facilities to uh, build uh, a foreign country's navy uh, because, in this case, of course, that foreign country uh, is in opposition to our arch enemy, which is Russia. Uh, and, and that seems to be, uh, from a foreign policy objective, expedient at this point in time. But in the meantime, we're not uh, building or reinforcing our own naval capability. So uh, clearly we want the Ukrainians to die for us. No two ways about it, Mike. But then that the whole belt of countries from Estonia to Georgia seems to exist in our policymakers' minds for precious few other reasons than that. Um, I am most gratified that their lordships have personally assured the nation that none of our taxpayers' money is going to be corruptly spent when it reaches Ukraine, because, of course, their word is good enough to make sure that that would never happen in Ukraine. Uh, the problem, of course, underlying this is that the line of control between uh, Ukraine's uh, government-controlled territory and the People's Republic of Donetsk runs all the way down to the coast, not far east of the city of Mariupol. And this creates a grey zone in which uh, Russian frigates can make incursions without actually breaking the law of the sea or other international law, which Russians are usually a stickler for. Um, so this provides some degree of worry that the Russians will be able to provide some degree of signals intelligence cover, possibly even uh, nip in and do some bombardment if necessary. And all the way along the Ukrainian coast, is it's dominated as far west as Odessa by Russian speakers of limited loyalty to the Ukrainian state as currently constituted. So Ukraine has its own weak underbelly. Um, but I think at the most dramatic, we could say deliberately undermining the Royal Navy. Um, it was a treasonable offence for a long time, wasn't it? OK, it's not arson in Her Majesty's dock dockyards, which is the last hanging offence that we scrapped because of human rights requirements. Uh, but it's not far short of that, isn't it? Causing damage to Her Majesty's Navy. Uh, by, in this case, directly reallocating funds from our rust bucket Navy to Ukraine's. Yeah, OK. Well, look, uh, uh, we're absolutely out of time, Alex, but let's just, uh, if you reasonably quickly, cover this uh, this issue of the next U US civil war in The Guardian. Imagine my surprise to find that a Canadian intellectual, Stephen Marsh, a cultural critic from Toronto who's written on Shakespeare, uh, has produced a book on the next US civil war, which uh, people can easily find details of. Um, his Guardian piece is saying that uh, secession is a foregone conclusion. He's writing from the perspective of coastal liberals. Uh, he says that the the right, by which, of course, he means everyone who's not with the neo uh, uh, the New World Order agenda, has a plan and it's violence. Tap that again and you'll see more of his purple passages. The American left, by which he means, of course, a particular kind of neo-left, not the traditional left, must now do the following. Stack the Supreme Court, end the filibuster, which means stop people speaking in the Senate, make Washington, D.C. a state, that'll do uh, want no end of good for anti-corruption, and let the dogs howl. And this is typical of the passages in uh, uh, his book, Stephen Marsh's book, which I uh, listened to this morning, uh, the first day it's been out on audiobook, listened on triple speed while doing the slide preparation. How's that for efficiency? We do all for our listeners that we can. 
and it's full of these purple passages accusing the uh, so-called hard right of being ready to let off low-level nuclear bombs and uh, of, of uh, believing in a nation that doesn't exist and all kinds of eye-watering stuff. Tap that again and you will see another final passage in which he calls the United States Constitution uh, a shell. He doesn't use that word, but he says that the Constitution is supposed to work for living people rather than for a bunch of old ghosts. There you are, dear American viewers. Uh, the revolutionary uh, sacrifices that were made for you were done by a bunch of old ghosts, says Mr. Marsh of Toronto. I found an interview in which he's more frank than he is in his book itself. There he is in his typical pose. I am a superior type. And he's giving this interview with, of all people, an Australian in Los Angeles named Ian Masters. The interview is called How the Next Civil War is Already Here, but we refuse to see it. And if I were a conspiratorial type, I would say that with a Canadian and an Aussie on board, it's almost like the Crown is telling America, uh, you've gone too far with this project. We're about to lose track of you. So wind it in already. Um, the, the, the most important uh, bit of this was 15 minutes into this 20 minute interview where Marsh really gives the game away. He basically says in the giveaway moment when he's become comfortable with his interviewer, Ian Masters, that it's up to those who are with the New World Order agenda uh, the globalists, shall we say, to wind up America, because if they don't, and this goes back to my dad's point in that literacy interview, uh, the real Americans are in danger of actually taking over. And we can't have that. We'd rather wind up the country. So it's uh, at rock bottom. It is a policy of spite. It is if we can't control it, we have got to blow it up. Uh, no pun intended, because Marsh is always saying in that book that his enemies are about to blow America up. Yeah. OK. OK. We're, as I say, we're out of time. So we'll just do uh... We'll just do one and finally here, Alex uh, from Dutch Review. Prick spite, spelt very difficult, but uh, you, if you're on watching the screen, you can uh, enter it into Twitter. Every day, Dutch Twitter comes up with some absolute corkers about this word, prick spite. It means regretting the jab. And it's been devoted after a, a, you know, a strong action by the pro-liberty crowd in the Netherlands. It's been voted word of the year. And the dictionary authorities and uh, those organising this contest have had to admit through gritted teeth that this wasn't brought about by bots. It was a large number of real people in the Netherlands who wanted to vote that to be the neologism of the year, much to the chagrin of the Dutch public broadcaster NOS, which has insinuated that uh, this itself is a sign of a polarised society, that such a controversial word should be word of the year. It seems that three times more Dutch voted this year than usual to make that the word of the year. So if you entered that word into Twitter any day and uh, translate the tweets you find, you're in for a treat. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Excellent. Well, I think we better finish there. A uh, lot to think about in that UK column news. We can see how serious things are, but of course, what do people need to be doing? They need to be talking about what's happening. They need to be explaining it, sharing the truth, documents, and uh, give yourself a treat. Get on to the, the We Are Change uh, petition and make your statement on uh, Tony Blair. Uh, change.org. Oh, sorry, change.org, change a big pun. And uh, you don't have to donate. Uh, you can share what you're doing and that, that's accepted without any trouble. And yeah, we do know the background, but let's focus on Mr. Blair and see if we can gently remove that garter from off of his leg. Yes. Okay, we'll okay, get there. Thanks yeah, for joining us. We'll be back in a few minutes on the on the uh, live stream for some extra, and otherwise back on Friday at one p.m. Yeah, bye bye. Bye. -bye.